The In-Depth Podcast with Richard Harding. Welcome along to the first In-Depth Podcast of 2020, the first of a new decade. And of course, I'm very pleased to welcome back the President of Policy and Resources, Deputy Gavin St. Pierre. You've got a lot coming up this year, a very busy time in the lead up to the elections, but also some uh, quite big uh, news stories. The latest of which is, it's been revealed in an answer to a question by Deputy Laurie Carapel that the state spent more than £6 million in consultants last year, which was more than double the amount in 2018. Now, this is something that really angers a, a lot of islanders. Um, tell me why, why you need these consultants, UK yeah. consultants. I mean, I think we have to put it in context. £6 million pounds is, a, is, is a less than 1% of total government spending across the entire year. Um, and I think you also have to recognise that as a small uh, jurisdiction, uh, inevitably we will not have all the skills and resource um, in-house. And indeed, you, you wouldn't want to have that because that would obviously be a permanent cost to the public service if you were employing a resource that you might only need once in a while. So um, I think it is right, and, and it would be entirely normal and expected that, that you will be seeking external expertise uh, from time to time. The question is always managing that in a, in a, in a sensible and appropriate way. I think the change from 2018 to 19, 19 to some extent was about the way certain expenditure was classified, and that's a sort of like an accounting issue. Um, but also individual projects will drive... Um, the use of greater external resource. So, for example, the uh, looking at plans for the schools means that you're going to need more um, architectural resource, for example, or the waste uh, station. So these are these are you would expect there to be peaks and troughs in the spending. Uh, all I can assure uh, the, the public is that that consultancy spends spending generally is one of those issues which is constantly kept under review and, and remains a high priority to ensure that it is appropriate so that people are not employing consultants for the sake of employing consultants. But people will say, and, and, and it's a fair point, that uh, why can't we find this expertise on island? Why not, for example, comply, uh, compile a database, ask people you know, who've got particular skills to register with the states, maybe even Pan-Island with Jersey, saying, I've got these skills, I won't charge the island, for all them, use me. I mean, I, th I think to be fair, there is a lot of use of local um, uh, uh, experience um, across the public service, uh, and again at uh, no or, or very low cost, and, and that is one of the massive virtues of our community that we've got so many people who do step forward to give their time um, for free. So, and, and again, um, uh, instinctively, I would say that's massive, uh, a massive advantage compared to similar. Uh, communities of a similar size. So, um, yeah, absolutely, we're always happy to to exp um, uh, to use the skills of, of, of those that have got it. We're now just a week away from Brexit. So, how prepared is Guernsey for this? So, for example, you know, more than two thousand EU nationals have applied to stay in the bailiwick uh, after the transition period. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, of course, uh, Brexit happening on the thirty first of January in the UK really is a legal event for the UK. Actually, nothing else is going to happen on that day. Um, the transition period basically uh, freezes the relationship in the sense that everything that happened on the 30th of January will continue to happen on the 1st of, uh, on the 1st of February. Um, and that will be the situation for the remainder of this calendar year. So it's a phony war, really, isn't it? It is a, it is a phony war. It, it, it's a convenient headline for the Prime Minister to say, I have got Brexit done, which obviously was the focus of his election campaign, 
The reality is um, that the real deadline now becomes the 31st of December, and that's, uh, that is going to be the major focus uh, for uh, 2020 in terms of our external relations, is making sure that we are positioned well to uh, ensure that we can protect and promote Guernsey's interest in that UK-EU negotiation. There are significant risks with the island, and not least complicated by the fact that we have our own general election in the middle of that. Um, so being able to manage our way through that process in a way that uh, maximises our advantage and our position is going to be a particular challenge for 2020, but one that we're absolutely uh, prepared for. A burning issue at the moment is education, of course. A group of head teachers and senior educationalists has written an open letter to Islanders uh, warning that delays to the changeover to the new selective colleges um, is harming the welfare of students and staff, um, but also uh, that the whole plan is wrong, that uh, they'd like it overturned and a delay brought in. What do you say to that? I think what we need to recognise is we are in the middle of a process and um, the uh, Committee for Education, Sport and Culture uh, need to prepare a business case, and that business case needs to be able to articulate how they can actually deliver the transformation of secondary education that's been approved by the states. That's not, that's not just a business case for the build of bits of concrete. It's a business case for how you can deliver the policy change. And clearly one of the issues is going to be um, the uh, views of stakeholders because uh, so that that's, is, has now become an issue that I would expect that need, would need to be addressed in, the, uh, in their final uh, business case. What I can also say is that final business case will then be independently reviewed, goes back to the use of external consultants. This is a very good example of where you, you would want to have that. And that report and the final business case will then come to, the, to my committee, the Policy and Resources Committee, to objectively and impartially review um, those documents. Now, I, I, I can't prejudge that um, process, but what I can categorically say is that, that Policy and Resources is not going to uh, approve um, the business case if we think that the case has not been made. So it really is the responsibility now for the Committee for Education, Sport and Culture, they've got their work cut out, I think, in view of um, perhaps recent events, to be able to demonstrate uh, in the face of this uh, apparent opposition that they can deliver the transformation of secondary education through their policy, uh, through their policy change. And, of course, it, uh, that, that's, that is the purpose of the process. So um, that, uh, that should uh, give reassurance to all those who have an interest in this. I understand the anxiety, um, but my, my counsel would be um, absolutely let's, let's uh, see where the process takes us. The political reality is we've got the elections coming up. Um, certainly deputies wanting to, to re be re-elected um, don't want to upset upset their uh, constituents. Um, so isn't there a, a real danger that at the last minute um, a lot of people change their tack and, and, um, and stop the whole process? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why it's, it's a time for, you know, cool and calm heads and, and, and reflection and to follow, um, uh, to, to follow the process in a, in a disciplined and professional way um, before making any, any rash um, political uh, decision or change of direction perhaps for, for you know seeking political advantage that is not in the community's interest and ultimately that's not going to be in the interests of those that are uh, either in the current education system or indeed are following uh, following on behind and that absolutely has to be the focus of everyone's priority is 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 is, is what in the be is in the best interest of, of the education system uh, not individuals um, seeking to uh, obtain a you know political advantage
Now, there's a new group called uh, Women in Public Life who want to encourage uh, more women to get into positions of power in island life, not just in the States, but generally. Uh, so what do you think could be done to encourage more women to stand in for the States of Guernsey? Well, I think, I mean, I think that initiative is a great initiative. I think it's, it, is, it, is, it is a fact that there are fewer women in public life, not just in the States, but in other roles as well than men. Um, so I think it is about normalising um, that... Uh, the role of women in, in, in public life and I th that therefore I think education and, and information which I think is the, is the purpose of the initiative is, is really valuable. Uh, there may well be thinking that needs to go on about you know, actually um, when that work takes place, thinking about the role of women in, in, in families and, uh, and their other commitments, whether actually it makes sense to be, uh, you know, whether hours need to be different and um, but I also would also place emphasis that it, I don't think it should diversification of participation in public life is just about women. We should be thinking about other groups as well. I think in particular, um, young people, of course, are, are you know, massively underrepresented. And, of course, there are good reasons for that in terms of people establishing uh, their careers and so on. But, but nonetheless, um, I think we do need to have uh, more, a more, more uh, representation of our community across a whole range of public roles, not just in the states of deliberation. Now, there was a bit of a scare uh, recently that, uh, f with Flybe. It was uh, rescued from collapse last week. Uh, so what contingency plans are in place for Islanders if the company gets into trouble again? And, and we have also since then heard that, uh, that uh, Southend is being dropped. Uh, also, uh, Heathrow very likely to be dropped because the, the slots may disappear. But uh, Yeah, I mean, to some extent, this is, this is a consequence of a decision uh, of the States of Guernsey 18 months or so ago to have open skies on uh, for uh, fl uh, travel into the island other than on the Gatwick route and, and open, an open skies policy presumes that the market will solve the problems. So in a sense you can't kind of have it both ways. You can't um, uh, think that you want the competition and then complain at the impact of the competition on the marketplace and, and how it will then uh, potentially disrupt um, as people enter and leave the market. That that is the nature of a free market. That is the consequence of open skies. So I think, uh, it, in a sense, it, none of this is a great surprise that we should see routes being adopted and then dropped, um, because you'd expect that from uh, from operators seeking to test the market. Having said all of that, I think actually the, our ownership of the um, Orany um, as a as a public asset is is hugely reassuring. We have seen. Or any step in before when it's been required. Of course, most recently, um, uh, in terms of uh, upscaling their commitment to the Gatwick route, when Fly B stepped away from that. So, um, I, I think th that is a it, it, it's a massive. Although, of course, there are challenges around Orany and its profitability. Ultimately, its main role is to be a strategic asset for the island, and it's demonstrated that time and again. And so uh, I think if there is any major disruption in the, in the aviation market in the future, we've always got the reassurance that we have that asset available to us. And, of course, uh, Blue Islands, uh, it locally, uh, some of the routes operated, uh, you know, uh, the flyby routes are operated by Blue Islands. I understand that they, in contingency planning, uh, that they said they may maintain 
uh, Exeter and Southampton in, in the case that the flyby itself goes on? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the, the reality is, is if there is a market, and it goes back to, to the Open Skies philosophy, if there is a market there and there is demand there, then there will be somebody who's willing to supply it. The question is, is whether there's any gap in that. And you could, you, you could envisage that in some cases there will be a gap and in some cases it will be immediately filled depending on the availability of the supply. I mean, this is, this is classic, this is economics 101, a matching of demand in the market to supply in the market. So uh, it will vary, I suspect, route by route. And staying with airlines, uh, the States of Albany member Alex Snowden has uh, raised concerns about the reduction of service between the island and Southampton. He says it could harm economic growth there. So what do you, what do you say to him? Well, I mean, let's be clear, airlinks are, are not a transferred service under the 1948 agreement. So funding airlinks is absolutely not the responsibility of the states of Guernsey. It has accidentally become the responsibility of the states of Guernsey in recent years because um, of the state ownership of Orney uh, and the fact that Orney is earning losses. But there is absolutely no um, requirement for, for Guernsey to be funding uh, airlinks to, to Alderney. Now, the public service obligation process, which has been running for the last... A uh, year or so um, has been rerun because the first one didn't didn't produce a satisfactory result. Will determine, I hope, how much public funding is needed to support Airlinks into Alderney. But but then a conversation then needs to be had um, as to the source of funding to to uh, to support them and really how that changes the relationship between the islands. So you know this is a significant issue between uh, between Guernsey and Alderney. But it, the starting point of that. Um, is airlinks are not a transferred service. How does the states strike the correct balance between human and financial costs when it comes to funding drugs and treatments? Do you think, almost as a moral thing, should all the nice approved drugs be funded here? Uh, I mean, this is a really, really challenging question, and I think the debate that the states had last week was a, was a good debate, and I think in particular the policy letter that the Committee of Health and Social Care put together was an excellent policy letter because it was evidence-based and it was informed and I think that frankly is the only way in which you can base these decisions. There was a clear rationale for if you like the cut-off which was being recommended by health and social care. The reality is is there will always be uh, more demand um, for drugs and treatments than can possibly be funded at public expense so you know at some point judgments have to be made and those, that, those judgments have to be based on informed um, you know, clinical evidence and experience which is uh, in the hands of the professionals rather than uh, politicians. So I think the, the, the policy basis that the states adopted was the right one um, and um, you know, that will inevitably have cut-offs which people will fall either side of it and, but, and it's, it, it is a hugely difficult and emotional issue but that is, is the most rational way in which to deal with the matter. Now, Barry Weir's Alliance Party um, has just emerged, and it's the first to actually call itself a party, joining the Island Association and uh, 2020 Association. So if you stand again, would you consider joining a political grouping or even perhaps find, founding one? Yeah, I mean, I would. I mean, in fact, I'd probably go further and say that probably I would only, I'll only be prepared to stand actually as part of some kind of, of group. But it's a group that, that I think needs to have um, shared values and behaviours and, and is comprised of people who can uh, demonstrably work um, together towards, um, to, towards common goals, even if you can't agree on, on, every, uh, on every policy. It, it needs to be about delivering rather than debating, and in particular uh, not about re-debating. I think one of the challenges is this 
uh, you, know, dis- if, if, you need to be able to disagree and lose in the right way um, rather than constantly redebating everything. And I think it's one of the big challenges. So for me, um, if there is a group that uh, can be pulled together that, that is, is bound by those, uh, by, by those uh, behaviours and values, that's what's needed in our system of government because our system of government relies on consensus being built um, within committees and indeed within the assembly. So we need people um, to work together to put the island first and that uh, I think is eminently achievable but I think that is going to be critical uh, particularly with with an island-wide vote where there is going to be so much uh, choice available and, 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 and it will be very hard for uh, any of us in the electorate to be able to filter that in any kind of uh, d- uh, logical way. Have any discussions taken place, may I ask? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of, of conversations have been going on for, for some time, so um, I would expect there, uh, you know, I, I would expect there to be um, uh, something emerging, as I say, for, certainly for me personally, it, it makes sense to um, to, to be part of such a group rather than um, you know just a, a single voice in a uh, in a very large uh, field when we are, might we be here um, about this well sometime before nominations <laughs> close I would suggest um, it's not into yeah, it, than the famous exclusive yeah, yeah. It's, it, you know, it, 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 this the, the uh, the, I think we have to recognise that Guernsey does not have party politics. It doesn't have the infrastructure. It doesn't have the culture. Um, it doesn't have the depth of civil engagement in in allowing groups to um, to come together around policy. And in many ways, that's a you know something to be celebrated in the fact that actually what we have is a community that is um, yeah, comes together in concern on particular issues but not isn't sufficient there aren't any sufficient causes if you like you know whether it's mass unemployment or social housing that have driven people to feel they need to organize themselves politically the reality is is uh, a vast majority of the community are able to get on and, and actually focus on their own lives, their own families, their own careers and jobs, um, and, and not worry too much or enough to, to actually go out and organise themselves into political parties. So I think in the absence of that, that and, and operating within that reality, but also recognising uh, that there is going to be this massive field and that every individual will have 38 votes. It is a hugely you know, uh, massive challenge for each of us as a member of the electorate and I think it is a responsibility of those of us who are um, seeking to participate in public life, in political life, uh, to try and uh, present um, something which enables the public to make those, the, those kind of filters, filtering choices. Very interesting, very interesting. And now tomorrow at the IOD breakfast, former Chamber President Marty Dorry is going to be presenting his idea once again of a tunnel linking Guernsey with Jersey. Is it pie in the sky or, you know, could it happen one day? I, I mean, I love the ambition of Martin and, and his team that are putting this together. I think, I think it is absolutely, um, you know, I, I think it's to be encouraged that people are thinking on that kind of, of scale and, and, and imagining that things are, are not impossible because it's very easy for all of us to dismiss this kind of thing oh that's ridiculous it's never going to happen it's it's too big it's whatever so i think you know i 
I've no idea whether it's feasible or not, um, but this is a private sector initiative and I'm very happy that, that the private sector should be going out and looking at it. Why shouldn't they? And if they can come back and present a credible case, well then uh, we, the community, and ultimately through uh, the community's representatives in, in, uh, in government can make a decision as to whether they want to progress with it or not. But at this stage, absolutely, go away and take a look at it and um, I think they should, be, they should be encouraged. And more of the same in other areas, absolutely. As I mentioned at the start of uh, the podcast, this is the start of the decade. Uh, but for what, for looking back, what have been the highs and lows of the past decade? I know there's so many things. So many things, yeah. I mean, I'll probably, I guess probably start with the lows. I mean, let's touch on education. I mean, education, here we are about to go around the roundabout again on, on another education debate. I mean, this is, this is the latest chapter in, 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 in two decades of um, the island's uh, discussion of education, you know, I don't think that could possibly be described as a high of, uh, of, of politics in Guernsey over those two decades, so it's probably a low. Um, I think the slow pace of progress on the disability and inclusion strategy in the last few years and, on, and indeed the failure to, to really address the long-term care, which we know is a growing problem, again, we're not unique and, and we're not unique in being unable to to, to bring forward solutions. Um, other, other communities are similarly struggling. I think this, the last uh, decade, undoubtedly the economy has been running at a lower uh, heat. It's been a more sluggish economy. We've had slower real terms increase in the size of the economy and therefore in income for families. So we've seen, you know, we've undoubtedly seen squeezed budgets. Um, I think the highs, though, have been, you know, perhaps it's addressing some of the problems that arose out of that economic situation. The fact was that um, in 2012, um, when I came into politics, we were running a budget deficit. We, that's the consequence of the, uh, of zero, the introduction of zero ten as an as a internationally imposed tax change on us. It was a consequence of the global financial crisis in 2008. And we've, that deficit, through, and it's been hard work and it's required discipline, but we've now turned that into a balanced budget and, and, and even some surpluses. I think our international reputation this decade has been enhanced. I think the stability we've been able to offer in the last three years when everybody else has been running around like headless chickens on Brexit has been a major strength. And I'm, I'm anxious that we don't lose that as we um, go through the change of government um, as we touched on earlier. I think the, the adoption of some social policy like same-sex marriage is, is, you know, is, is to be welcomed, that the community have embraced that in a, in a way that perhaps wouldn't have been imagined um, in the decade before. Um, and actually, for me personally, um, a high, I think, would be the assisted dying debate. Now, that may seem an odd one to cite, given that it was in a debate that I lost. <laughs> um, but actually, I was really pleased with the quality of that debate. It's one of the, 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 one of the, the highlights of my political life so far in terms of the, not just in the States, but actually the quality of the community's engagement with it. It was a very respectful, it was very serious, and I think we, it was a real demonstration of our, our seriousness and ability as a community and as a jurisdiction that we could deal with an issue like that in the way that we did. So um, that would be one of my highlights for the last decade. Uh, just in the, in the Lowe's category, one of the things you didn't mention was the nurses' uh, dispute. Where, where are we with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't think it would qualify as a low of the decade. I mean, mm. it's clearly a current issue that needs to be resolved. Mm. Um, and uh, we have a very clear process through the industrial disputes law the matter is now with the industrial disputes officer um, so it, it is for him to just determine the next step um, and and we ha again uh, we have to let that process run so uh, 
just to, to add in another uh, uh, news story that's come up, uh, a raquette from uh, Deputy Lindsay de Somry, um wanting to discuss 5G and the introduction of 5G. What Do you think uh, that, that's a, g- a good idea? Uh, to be honest, I haven't had a chance to see that raquette, so I don't know what the detail of it is and what the propositions are. Um, so, you know, really I think I'd reserve my position on that to understand what, where... Um, where um, we're coming from, I think, uh, where should the Red Cross are coming from? I think in a, you know, more generic response in relation to technology, you know, th- this is going to become a ubiquitous technology, I suspect, uh, uh, globally. So it's one of those things that we n- you know, need to work out how to, um, how to adopt it in, in a way that is appropriate for our community and enables our community, um, you know, if, if indeed that is going to be the case, which you know, it looks as if it will be. So um, that's a challenge for us as a community. And in terms of Huawei technology, uh, are we likely to follow the UK? Uh, absolutely. I think it, you know we would be foolish to. We don't have the resources. We don't have. Going back again to the question of cons- use of consultants, we don't inevitably on a question like that we don't have access to all the information and intelligence and expertise that that larger jurisdictions do. So. Um, it, the most sensible and logical thing for us to do is to place reliance on those that have got access to that information um, and it would seem odd to depart on a matter of that issue, of that magnitude particularly when you are talking about security and, and for us as a financial services uh, sector which is, is so reliant on that there can be no ambiguity there can be no question mark about our IT security you know that absolutely is a is a is a you know, red line issue for us I would suggest uh, and, and, and our economy finally what would you like the island and the whole bailiwick to achieve in the next 10 years great question I mean I think um, I, I think one thing we haven't talked about so far is climate change I mean climate change is an existential risk for uh, well, for the globe, but but also for us as a community, particularly as an island, low-lying island community. Um, I've said it before, you know, 63,000 people in a world of 7 billion, our, our contribution to that, either way, good or bad, is is, is not going to make a difference. But, but I think it is absolutely critical that we play our part. And I think that's a massive opportunity for us to be able to reposition the island's reputation in the world, that, you know, instead of being seen as you know, simply a financial services centre and all the connotations that come with that, we can reposition ourselves as a force for good. We can be part of the solution. We can be, through our finance sector and green finance, we can be d- demonstrating why we are relevant and important. So I think for me, that is a, a massive opportunity, and I would like to think that it is... Um, in 10 years' time, we've managed to, to reposition the way the world views us, and they see us as an absolutely you know, key linchpin in that, addressing that global challenge uh, for the next generation and the generation beyond. And then beyond that, I mean, I, I genuinely hope, and I know it, this has been sort of scoffed at, but I, I hope that we are seen to be one of the healthiest and happiest places in the world. It, it, uh, that's not about utopia. That's not about their not being any problems. There will be problems. Of course there will be. Um, but I think actually... As we've started on that journey through um, the process that started a couple of years ago, we're starting to measure some of the metrics that enable you to make those judgments. I think we can see that actually this community is, you know, has a, an awful lot going for it, and, and you know, it, it's 
in terms of our environment and the the um, the, uh, the the the, the uh, and, and the experiences and opportunities that most of our community have, not all of our community, and that's where the challenges lie. Um, it, you know, we are absolutely up there. So I think it is eminently achievable that we can, on good you know good set of discipline metrics actually achieve that, that ambition of becoming one of the healthiest and happiest places in the world. So I think for me, those would be the two ambitions for the decade ahead. Deputy Gavin Sabir, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the In-Depth Podcast with Richard Harding.